Daniel, and thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. Um, as Christopher mentioned, I, I, I do live in London, but it's wonderful to visit the international offices. I was in Frankfurt yesterday, and good to be here in Munich. I'm afraid my German is still a bit rusty, but having listened through several presentations in German, it's getting better. <laughs> so maybe give me a bit of time. Um, but yeah, as, as mentioned, in Sinali Sarabad and I had ESG for Simmons. We see it very much as an international proposition. ESG straddles and is impacting clients across the board regardless of your footprints and really also regardless of your ambitions uh, because a lot of the clients we deal with uh, my colleagues have, have discussed throughout the day often have global footprints whether that be their employees their investments their portfolios their clients so when you look at ESG as advisors we really need to look at the full spectrum and that is really my mandate I do come from industry I'm a lawyer by training but I was at Morgan Stanley for over 10 years across both legal and business functions so I feel your pain, shall we say. <laughs> I have been a client, I have tried to implement ESG when it, you know, the wave, the first, second wave going through, and I fully appreciate and empathize it's a painful process, not least because of the volume of change, the pace of change, and also the fragmentation. So the challenge I set myself, and also one of the reasons that prompted me back into the law, more sensible people, they have a job in private practice, then they go into industry and stay there. <laughs> Not many people make it back into the law, <laughs> but that was me. And one of the reasons that I did that was, well, two reasons I would say. Firstly, uh, the law was defining the space, ESG. Uh, for better or for worse, we can discuss. And secondly, as a client, I felt perhaps there is a gap in how advisors are helping clients navigate this journey. Because there's so much volume, it's really, really difficult to cut through the noise. Um, and so that's the challenge I've set myself um, and, and as a firm to help clients navigate this and to distill what's really relevant. And so at Simmons, just more generally before we dive into the digitization topic, we've distilled it into five key themes. So regardless of whether you are um, an automotive conglomerate in Wolfsburg or an electric powerhouse in, C in, 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 in Munich or München, uh, these are the five topics, and these straddle governance, reputational management, regulation, transactions, and fifth and final, risk management, whether that be litigation or enforcement. So my job in the firm is really to bring all these specializations together across our international offices um, and, and to address it in a way that's specific to each client. Because you might tell me, transactions, we're on it. But regulation, we have no idea what's coming down the pipes, or vice versa. Or, you know, that you might have encountered some turbulence, like the session before, where you have enforcement or litigation issues or reputational management issues. So it's up to us as advisors to understand what your pain points are, what's keeping you up at night, and address those points rather than just talking about the theory at large. So that's my role, uh, but very happy to dive into some macro issues as to how it's manifesting in a digital world. So the BaFin issued um, a paper on uh, dealing with sustainability risk, and you mentioned that risk is one of the five pillars. So it's correct to assume that ESG is a risk ex exercise. And uh, are there any specifics for the tech sector? So the, so the risk in... So here's the thing. I mean, I come from industry, so I see it in a kind of a two-pronged approach. Daniel. On the one hand, there's the risk side. So... Yes, there's compliance issues. Yes, there's regulation and things you need to do, for sure. 
but there's also opportunity. And so I see it as a spectrum of risk versus opportunity, and different clients, different firms are on a varying part of that spectrum. Right? So for those people and, and organizations, firms, uh, for a variety of reasons who see it as a risk mitigation approach, it's only natural that new technologies would present new and unanticipated risks, shall we say. Um, there have been some very lofty questions that have been raised of late as to what uh, machine learning, artificial, in artificial intelligence, etc., can mean for humanity. Right? Jeffrey Hinton from Google resigned recently, saying that it could spell the end of humanity if it's been used by bad actors. Now, those are very lofty long-term questions which are important, but I would say there are some more mundane, short to immediate-term challenges that we can easily discuss. So if you take the E, S, and the G, let's take G because that's been um, discussed quite a lot today and hopefully we can not delve into too much. Oversight and accountability, I would say, are the key areas for on the governance side, whether that be um, you know, risk in terms of the, the cyber risks that Rob and Sasha spoke about a minute ago, or data management or privacy issues making sure that, as with new technology, the new risks are effectively addressed within the governance architecture that you put in place is critical for it to be fit for purpose. Then if you move on to the E, which is more interesting, I would say, in this space, on the environmental side of things, look, we cre have created more digital information over the past two years than we ever did in, in, the, you know, in history. So therefore, the dependency and a use and need for data centers has increased accordingly. <coughs> Christopher alluded to it earlier in terms of whether that be LLMs, whether that be blockchain, AI. Um, it, you know, one percent of the energy-related global, you know, greenhouse gas emissions usage is related to data centers. One percent is quite significant. So that is the reality, and the likelihood is that would continue to grow. Now, I'm sure you're all aware that as a, a lot, you know, 160 countries, not least Germany, has set a net zero target by 2030. So to be uh, 1.5 degrees or less in terms of heating compared to 1990 levels by 2030. So that's referred to as a net zero target. Now, the UN has said that energy usage needs to halve in order for us to get to that 2030 target. Now, how does that reconcile? Immediately, you, you run into some very fundamental and very uh, clear issues. Uh, so on the data center side of things, we know that certain companies are trying to address this point, but the risks are apparent. Like when you talk about blockchain, uh, there are some technologies, so particularly you know, when you take Bitcoin, for example, uh, the, the proof of work, <laughs> approach, huge resource in terms of data. I know Ethereum is taking a different approach in terms of POS, which they say uh, is going to reduce the use of energy by 99.5%. You may have a view on it. Let's see if that actually manifests. But it's still at a very nascent age. Um, and the data suggests, so Facebook has mentioned their use of uh, energy for machine learning has increased their year-to-year energy usage by 40% over the past two years. That's just one company, nearly 50% increase. That's quite significant. Um, and, and so we just have to have 
perspective and really acknowledge the fact that for this industry, which is ironic because if you look at the fund industry and if you look at the funds that say that they're investing in ESG-focused products, they have huge exposures to technology. And yet, as a sector, you've got to acknowledge that from an environmental perspective, it's pretty energy intensive. Uh, but there is some some glimmers of hope. There are some companies and countries that are looking at innovative ways. So uh, some the kind of two examples I wanted to share with you is, uh, so Google, for example, is a great example. Uh, they, have, um, they have set themselves a target that the totality of their data centers would be, would be sourcing renewable energy by 2035. Now, how they get there is a question, but that's a lofty and ambitious target. Also certain countries, so S Stockholm and Sweden, uh, Stockholm Data Parks is an example where they are using the waste energy from data centers to heat homes. And they have estimated that there's 100 megawatts of energy that's, or heat that's emitted by these data centers that can power over 80,000 homes. And so they have set an ambition by 2035, 10% of Stockholm's heating needs would come from data centers. That's pretty extraordinary. So I think as much as there are challenges, there are people who are innovating in real time. And on the social side of things, on the S of ESG, look, it's been mentioned before, there is a diversity issue in the technology sector. I don't, I mean, I'll give you some statistics, but you know, 25% of PhDs, just 25% are women in terms of the STEM sectors. 95% um, of researchers, AI researchers in Google are men. 80% in Facebook are men. 80% of AI professors are men. We have a little bit of a problem, <laughs> right? And then that manifests and reinforces in the technologies that you create. So, therefore, I think, and the other point to bear in mind is, how do you, firstly, how do you make sure that those uh, prejudices, stereotypes don't manifest and reinforce in the technology you create, whether that be a metaverse or AI or what have you. And secondly, there is a movement to use AI in recruitment processes. Uh, there's data to suggest that around 50 companies, 50 companies across the technology sector uh, have committed to use data, data, AI more actively. There was a really interesting report published by Cambridge University late last year uh, to say that, you know, techno-solutionism to fix these more fundamental deep-rooted <coughs> issues like discrimination is, can actually be quite, quite counterproductive because they in fact need investment and change in corporate culture. Because on the one hand, you can game the system, right? You can answer these questions in a way that would address the requirements that the algorithm chooses to understand and identify. And secondly, if the data sets are used on historical data, you're essentially trying to recreate a workforce that exists already. So just these are things to bear in mind and, and know that these are issues that we have to, you know, embrace technology, but do so with our eyes open. So you talked a little bit about the issues in the ESG space in relation to, to new technology, but we also know that the technology sector is often a positive driver for innovation. So does this also create opportunity in the ESG space? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I come from industry, so to me, Truth be told, it's really more about the opportunity, right? We're, we're here because we see the opportunity in leveraging technology for everything we do, 
uh, and that is the future. So I, I, I feel as much as there are challenges, I strongly, strongly believe that technology can be used not just to further your ambitions from a business perspective, but also sustainability. Uh, let's take environmental, for example. Two, two ways in particular I would call out. One, to understand climate change, and secondly, to optimize existing systems. Optimization is perhaps more easier to understand, so whether that be transportation, um, smart grids, etc. how do you leverage technology to do that? Now, understanding climate science and climate change it's extraordinary how technology has been leveraged. You now have chat climate. How many of you have cha tried chat climate out of curiosity? So that's chat GPT's version of climate science. Now it can very credibly have a conversation on climate science using the most authoritative and up-to-date scientific research as its input. Right. Then you have a variety of um, natural language processing technologies, NLPs, that are being used to identify greenwashing. And let me assure you, the regulators are also looking at technology quite actively to help them identify and address and enforce against greenwashing. There's an organization called Clarity AI that looks at um, different uh, claims that have been made and makes certain you know, the graphs and tables to outline how companies are approaching it. Um, there is Green, Green Watch AI that looks at emissions, vis -a -vis, uh, emission statements and targets vis-a-vis real-time emissions. There is Climate Burt that fact-checks companies' climate data. Right. And also, there are really interesting, innovative ways that companies are leveraging technology, uh, new technology with existing technologies. So you have um, Carbon Tracker. Those of you in financial services may be familiar with it, but what it does is that it reconciles AI with satellite technology to identify real-time emissions of companies. And the idea is that it could enable particularly financial firms to wean out of financing oil and gas by understanding the type of emissions and the nature and scale of emissions that are being emitted. And I do know from speaking to clients that Carbon Tracker is being used actively across the financial sector. IBM is doing some pretty innovative stuff. Um, we're hosting an event. I'm quite excited. I'm from Sri Lanka. I mean, we live on an island in England as well. Uh, so I'm an islander. I'm an island girl by heart. And so the oceans to me is a very key part of the environment. We're hosting an event in June on the blue economy. And we're working with IBM because they are using, again, satellite technology with satellites that they've deployed under the ocean to recalibrate and map marine biodiversity. It's pretty extraordinary and also quite exciting, should be told. Um, and then on the, the, the social side of things, really, yes, again, I mentioned the challenges, but I must stress on the opportunities. There was a fantastic book that was published in February this year by um, Dr. Shonan uh, Prizovic, and he uh, talks about, let me get the title right, it's called I, Human, Automation, AI, and the, the Quest to Retain What Makes Us Unique. Uh, so how do you maintain that individuality, humanity? Because that's really what differentiates us. Um, and the point is there are a couple of ways to do that. On the one hand, in terms of diagnosis, identifying existing biases in the system using data and doing that with intensity that, that technology can leverage. And secondly, also measuring inclusion, and I'll touch on what the word inclusion, and also meritocracy. 
now, when you talk about diversity and inclusion, to my mind, diversity is a number, right? How many women, how many people of color, easy to count. Inclusion is a bit nebulous. It's a sense of belonging, much harder to track. And so how do you leverage AI to do that? And secondly, meritocracy. So what they suggest is that AI can be used to purify measuring performance. So instead of using uh, people's perception, so and essentially to wean out nepotism and politics. So instead of uh, rewarding someone or measuring someone based on what people think or perception, subjective perception, you actually measure the person's actual contribution, to, true contribution to their teams, to their organizations. So purifying measuring impact. Uh, pretty, I mean, it's quite sobering, actually. Uh, but this is technology that's being built in real time and hopefully can be leveraged for the better. So a clear and strong statement for a positive interaction between ESG and, and innovation. Uh, and with this uh, final remarks, so we would like to open the, the stage for questions. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any questions? Don't be shy. <laughs> Is there an obvious tipping point when the tensions between um, emissions produced um, <clears throat> in developing technology um, Really, whether that te technology is employed in, uh, for example, mapping flora and fauna in, in the oceans or, um, uh, you know, other climate change and biodiversity objectives. When the, it's a tipping point when those emissions produced actually become counterproductive. Is that, are, we, are we going towards that or is that, is that something that is going to be managed? Well, I, I suspect it's inevitable that we will get to that, Rob. And I, I equate it almost, to my mind, this whole tipping point versus, you know, the global south versus the global north, right? That the, the 90% of the energy usage comes from 10% of the population. And, and yet we know that every country in the world wants to leapfrog and have the same lifestyles. So how do you, that tension is going to happen at some point. So I completely agree with you, but the question is when. Um, I, my assessment, I'm sure you are specialists in this room, is that technology is still developing at scale. And so at some point, um, and I'm sure, which is what the regulation, the regulators are trying to assess and understand, at one, po at one point, could they potentially introduce quotas in terms of energy usage or regulate it in some way so that there would be some form of equity? Thank you. Any other questions? Thank you so much, Pleasure. Sonali and uh, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you. Great.